0: Well, we come this morning to a series that we have never done before here in Grace, uh, Grace Church at Join Airs. We've never done a series that's going to span out, we believe, probably an entire year. That's the plan. It's a series that is going to comfort you and convict you. It's a series that I pray will also be putting into words some of the heartfelt groanings that maybe you have felt and never been able to experience, a series that is going to help you kind of seize the soul and to give structure and stability to the thoughts as we pilgrim through this life together. This series that we've been promising now for a few weeks, this series is called, as you can see, Psalms, subtitled Certain Truth for Uncertain Times. I just really like that overhead. Um, After years of being... Hearing me go through the book of Job and 1 Peter, after years of hearing Pastor John Street go through the book of Revelation and the book of Ruth, why, you might ask, have we now come to a study of this most magnificent book where both of your pastors are going to be going through this magnificent series of songs together? The reason being is because our desire is to unite and unify the message from this pulpit so that week in, week out, we are going to be drawing out all of the messages that come from the same portion of Scripture. And in that desire, it's going to be like streams that all flow into the same channel of water while at the same time giving you all of the variety that is so much a part of this book and so necessary to the Christian life. The book of Psalms gives all of that to us. Now, I say that because the book of Psalms has been given to us by the Lord in the pages of Holy Scripture as an indisputably inspired ancient worship hymnal, and it's been given to us, to the people of God, to instruct us as to how to express our faith in Yahweh, as to how to express our faith in various times of trial and certain truths for uncertain times. And I say that because as we open up this series, the collection of psalmists who penned these words wrote 150 psalms with the expectation that future lovers of Yahweh, future believers would use these compositions to express their own feelings before the Lord throughout various portions of their lives. They would use the psalms to allow them to, in times past, bear their soul, to cry out about sin to cry out about sorrow that comes from sin and their shame, to demonstrate their repentance and hope and faith and reverence and love, all of that is considered to be in this book, which is one of the most practical books in all of Scripture. One theologian writes it this way, Here, those who walk the path of persecution find solace, and the saints who walked in that same difficulty past centuries ago Here, those who suffer can enter into a fellowship of sympathy, which helps to remove the bitterness out of their tears. Here, the penitent can find assurance of acceptance with God in the experiences of the psalmist. Here, Christians can discern the presence of the Savior in the prophetic sketches of this journey from glory to the cross and back to glory. This is our series on the Psalms. Now, I think it's important this first sermon that you get some historical background about this, some context, as we have talked about so importantly in our last Q&A, because what we're going to venture into really needs a little bit of that. Uh, As we look at the Psalter, we need to think about what are the different approaches and what are the different kind of categories that we have here. Though in different ways people have tried to do this, I like this particular pattern that might be helpful for you just to kind of set the stage. Theologians, for the most part, have said that these are the kind of following psalms that we're going to see throughout our study. Number one, just predictive psalms, psalms that predict the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see praise hymns and hallelujah psalms that extol the wisdom and the graciousness and power of God. We're going to see petition and supplication psalms that pour out the needs of the human heart before God. We're going to see psalms that help us to confess our sin and help us to go before the Lord and seek his forgiveness. We're going to see perceptive or didactic or wisdom psalms that discuss the issues that are complex in the human heart. We're going to see profession or confession psalms that pour forth the psalmist's convictions about the mighty works of God. We're going to see patriotic or historical psalms that review the history of the relationship between Yahweh and his people. And then lastly, we're going to see pilgrimage psalms that were sung by the Lord's worshipers as they made their way up the hill to the temple to celebrate the great festivals spoken of in the Old Testament. And so even though the goal of all of this is not to necessarily exposit every single of the 150 psalms, that would take us about four years probably if if you could even sit through it, Uh, we will attempt to sample at least some of these different kinds of psalms so that to give you a bit of the flavor of this amazing book over the course of this next year. Now, each psalm has a history to it. Each psalm has a context to it. Each psalm will inform our understanding about the reason that it was written either clearly or we have to go through it didactically to understand. But each psalm does include a history behind it. In fact, of the 150 psalms, 101 of them have titles related to their authors. Uh, 73 are aligned to David, Uh, 10 to the school of Korah, 12 to the school of Asaph, 2 to Solomon, One to Ethan, one to Heman, one to Moses, and 50 that are anonymous. That's what we have before us. And though not every single psalm speaks to the human author, we know by way of the doctrine of divine inspiration that each psalm shares the blessing of being inspired by the divine author, the Holy Spirit. Out of the 219 quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament, 116 of them are from the Psalms. Just so you know, the Psalms have been divided into five books. Again, I don't think necessary to repeat this every single time that we preach, but just so you know, some people feel like it's been divided into five books to represent the five first books of the Torah. So in book one is the Genesis section, Psalm 1 through 41, reflecting on just man's state of blessedness and then fall and then recovery. You have book two, the Exodus section, Psalms 42 through 72, speaks of man's ruin and man's redemption. The third book is the Leviticus section, Psalm 73 through 89, focused on the tabernacle, the temple, and just the assembly of God's people. Then Numbers section, Psalm 90 through 106, speaking of the peril and protection of the earth. And lastly, the Deuteronomy section, Book 5, Psalm 107 through 150, dealing with the perfection and praise of the Word of God. It was Ambrose that said the Psalms are the voices of the church. It was Augustine that said they are the epitome of the whole scripture. It was Martin Luther that said they are the little book for all the saints. It was John Calvin that said they are the anatomy of all parts of the soul. And it was Isaac Watts that said they are the thousand voiced heart of all believers. That brings us to the very first psalm of the Psalter, the very first psalm set before us in this hymn book of God. It has been said that Psalm 1 is the doorkeeper of the entire book. It has been said that what is spoken here in the very first psalm is primarily the introduction which the remainder of the psalms are a sermon about. So here in Psalm 1, the door opens. The journey begins And the road unfolds before us in two different ways that are presented to us for our consideration. Let me read to you Psalm 1, the first psalm of the Psalter. And I'm going to be reading from the Legacy Standard Version the entirety of our study. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff in which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It was the poet Robert Frost who once wrote these very famous words. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, And be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. And then I took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black, Oh I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I I took the one last travelled by, and that has made all the difference. There's many ways that you could possibly interpret. Frost's poem, and many essays have been written about this. But the focus here is that we are faced with a choice. We are faced with a choice on which road we will take in this life. If the road of one or not the other, we may not be able to take both, but we must be aware of the fact that we need to choose though we may not be aware of the fact that there are two roads before us eventually you come to the proverbial fork in the road in your life which makes it very very clear two roads diverge in a wood and we must choose which one to travel by scripture is clear about the reality of these two roads which lies before us and it was our lord jesus christ who confronts us with the same idea at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to these two ways before us in the stark contrast by speaking of them as two ways that are seen and marked by two gates. Matthew seven thirteen, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. No matter who you are, no matter where you have traveled from, there is a road before you that defines where you are going. And the road before you is the path of either life or death, of either eternal joy or eternal anguish. This is the heart of Scripture. When we go to the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, we see that that crossroads is also spoken of and heightened and intensified by the imagery that we see of a father crying out in the book of Proverbs, trying to call his son as he journeys into the pathway of life, and he hears two voices pleading with him to walk in that way, one being the way of the adulteress and one of Lady wisdom. And we see that in Proverbs 7, beginning in verse 24. So now, my son, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart go astray into her ways. Do not wander into her pathways. For many are slain whom she has cast down, and numerous are those killed by her. The ways to Sheol are in her house, descending to the chambers of death. Chapter 8. Does not wisdom call and discernment give forth her voice? At the top of the heights above her, where the pathways meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors, she makes a shout. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O simple ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand a heart of wisdom. You're on a journey. You're on a journey, my friends, and the journey has choices and the roads have to be taken and you have to decide what you're going to do more now than ever, I believe. You have to understand the immediacy of this thought. You have to understand the urgency because this is the essence of Psalm 1. Rightly so, Psalm 1 is considered the gateway psalm. This is the doorway, the doorkeeper of the entire Psalter. And I might add the most practical and the most imperative of the Psalms to start with. What we have before us in this Psalm is not the voice of wisdom crying out to us. We don't hear the voice of the wicked yelling for our attention, but rather it's as if Psalm 1 stands before us as a gatekeeper to the temple. It's like a gatekeeper in the days of the Levites stationed at the gates of God's house. It was their task to open the temple gates in the morning and to close them at night. And they stood on guard to make sure that no unclean person would enter God's house. And they stood there hours on end, day and night. I tell you that because Psalm 1 is an eternal gatekeeper to the Psalms. It is an eternal gatekeeper that is stationed before us, and before we can enter into the wonder and the richness of everything in these songs, we must consider our ways. We must present to this gatekeeper our passports to prove not so much where we have been, but where we determine to go. There is, as you could tell in the reading of this psalm, no command here. There is no threat uttered. This is merely a statement of two realities. Two fixed truths that shall never be altered. They cannot be changed. And so the psalmist acts as the gatekeeper for our souls, presenting two paths for our consideration. Two choices that must be understood before we can even take one more step. And these considerations are these. There are only two. The destiny of the righteous is blessed. And the doom of the wicked is sure. The destiny of the righteous is blessed and the doom of the wicked is sure. Two ways of life for your consideration this morning. And when you come to this fork in the road, you have to be sure that you cannot take both paths. You cannot, as Robert Frost's poem infers, travel both roads. For life is very short and eternity is forever forever. For you have to take that step into the path by knowing which way you will go. So I want to look at this with you this morning. We're going to have the first consideration where the psalmist presents to us. And I'm going to spend the majority of my time in the believer's destiny. And then at the end, briefly, we're going to look at the doom of the wicked as we go. So number one, first, the destiny of the righteous is blessed. The destiny of the righteous is blessed. Look at verses one and two. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. Blessing is the reality of the righteous. Blessing is the destiny of the righteous. Knowing the bliss of God, knowing the depth and height and breadth of life of all that have the Lord in their hearts and have Him as the object of their affection is the incentive of the righteous, and this is how this ancient hymn begins. It's no... Maybe common surprise to you that the idea of blessing is a theme in all of the Psalms, 108 times in 98 verses with approximately 47 of those times referring to the blessing of the Lord, about 57 of those times referring to God blessing men? It's the same thought that our Lord Jesus Christ had when he started the Sermon on the Mouth. Again, blessed are the poor, blessed be those who mourn, blessed are the weak. The idea of blessing is a part of the understanding of the believer's life. In the Hebrew, the word here is actually in the plural when it speaks of this blessing, which denotes either a multiplicity of blessings or an intensification of them. This is the reality of the saints. This is who we are. This is, this is the reality of all who have given their life to Yahweh. What is that reality? Joy and bliss and the kind of happiness and the deep and profound, lasting, never-ending promise of everlasting joy. It's the reason that we teach our children to sing, I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart because it's here to stay. It's not a superficial joy. It's not a worldly happiness that comes and goes depending on our circumstances. No, this is the condition of a man or a woman or a child who has first and foremost been miserable. The blessing of this kind of blessing comes to those who have been confronted with their sinfulness, They have mourned, the Beatitudes say. They have seen who they are before a holy and righteous God, and they have shrunk before him, and they have cried out before him for his mercy and begged for his forgiveness. And the result of that mercy gives birth to joy, blessing, and a soul that is at rest with its maker because he has birthed them again. He has given them new birth. For the first time in about 20 years, Lori and I watched the video of the birth of my first son, Josiah. Uh, We hadn't seen this video for years because technology changed and we forgot to change with the technology. So now we watched it after they have been converted, and the miracle of this birth almost 21 years ago was staggering. There is no joy greater than that. There is no joy more of a blessing than that except the second time they are born. The second time they're birthed, the second birth from above, that is the blessing of the righteous. But I want you to notice something with me in these verses. This man or woman is not blessed just because of what's happened to them and the fact that they've been deemed righteous. Their blessing is not just an overflow of being declared righteous in their regeneration. No, in this blessedness, is a result, listen, of what they don't do. This isn't a result of what they don't do. They are internally and eternally blessed because they belong to Yahweh, but externally and specifically they are blessed because they do not walk or stand or sit with the ways of the wicked. And I want to look at these qualities with you quickly because they're very, very important that you understand this blessing comes from what you don't do. You are blessed when you do not, first of all, walk in the counsel of the wicked. When you do not walk, verse 1, in the counsel of the wicked. Walking your life, the way you live your life, the way you journey through this very, very short time on this earth is not defined as being under the counsel or the instruction of the mindset of the wicked. Those wicked are those who speak of, I'll speak later of it, but suffice it to say, they are those who do not love Christ, who do not love Yahweh, who whisper and scream all the time for your feet to stumble onto the path of the world. We are bombarded by this more now than ever. We are bombarded through social media to be susceptible to the counsel of the wicked. We hear their voices daily. We listen to their reason daily whether it be through talk radio or music or blogs or podcasts, we begin to slowly but surely align our thinking with the politics and the conspiracies and the anti-God philosophies because we are not, as verse tells us, delighting ourselves in the law of Yahweh, and instead we fill our minds with the lies of Satan. You say I'd never do that. Consider the path you're on, Christian. Consider the path you're on. Remember, Psalm 1 is the gatekeeper. Psalm 1 presents to you this road because sometimes we venture off the path. Sometimes we forget who we are, and sometimes we believe that slowly but surely. I recently read about a construction of a city hall and a fire station in a small northern Pennsylvania community. And all the citizens of this community were so proud of their new red brick structure, this long-awaited dream come true. And not too many weeks after moving in, strange things began to happen to the structure. Several doors failed to shut completely, and a few windows didn't slide open as easily. And as time passed, ominous cracks began to appear in the walls, and Within a few months, the front door couldn't be locked because the foundation had shifted and the roof began to leak. And by and by, that little building that was once the sort of great civic pride had to be condemned. The culprit proved to be a controversial coal extraction process called long wall mining which is deep in the earth beneath the foundation. Solid, soil, rock, and coal had been removed by the tons so that the building sat, sat on a foundation that had no support. Because of this man-made erosion, the building began to sink. And I say that to you because it's the same way with compromise. Slowly, almost without perception, one rationalizes your life and and triggers a series of other rationalizations and, and damaging alterations to a life that at one time was strong and stable and reliable. That seems to be the concern here of the psalmist as he begins this portion of scripture, as he composes this first song, which is to encourage us to resist even the slightest temptation to compromise to compromise our convictions. What are the other areas of blessing that comes from what we don't do, look at verse 1b, stand in the way of sinners. Do not stand in the way of sinners. You are blessed, you understand the blessing of God when in your life you don't stand with them. The word sinners here comes from a Hebrew word meaning, of course, to miss the mark. And it refers to deviating from the standard of God as revealed in his word. If we run with worldly people in their godless way of life, you will be wrongly influenced by them. Paul gives a similar warning in the New Testament. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Meaning to decay, to waste away your good morals, to chip away at what you had once. The effect of sin, you see, is this gradual buildup of plaque, using a medical analogy, producing spiritual hardening of one's heart. And this can happen to believers, especially even to those that think that could never happen to me. That would never happen to me. But it's progressive. It happens one leak at a time. Don't walk, don't stand, and don't sit still, verse 1c, or sit in the seat of scoffers. We are blessed if we do not sit in the same seat of the scoffers, or as Charles Spurgeon calls them, the doctors of damnation. Sit, in the Hebrew, is when one has settled down, is comfortable and content with the pattern of the world. You don't even notice it anymore. That's where you reside. In the present context, this verb pictures the idea of becoming so comfortable with sin and the progression of the casual influence of ungodly people in your life that there's a collision course. They're scoffers, those who treat God with ridicule. Scoffers are those who, are, who mock God, who scoff at religion, who scoff at uh, sacred things. And it's evidence of the extreme weakness and folly that they possess. And to show that contempt, then they express it. And that expression starts to de-emphasize your motivation for the things of God. Listen, you are blessed if you don't stand and sit with those who reject God, who reject that life happens at conception, who rejects that a man or a woman are who they are biologically and not philosophically, who reject the morality that is from God, who reject that the bedroom is only for a man and woman who have been brought together in marriage. You will never be blessed in this life. If you walk and stand and sit with those who scoff at God, who reject his word, who hate his speech, who consider his word to be hate speech, who hate the church, who long for the outlawing of every moral restraint, who live to make evil good and good evil. Just as the old saying goes, live fish swim against the stream, dead ones go with it. So where does this blessing come from? Where is the joy? Where is the peace and and the satisfaction, the deeply rooted contentment find its source in verse 2? But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. So behind the scenes, what you have here is a man or woman who sees the word of God as their delight. They, They walk in the counsel of Yahweh. They stand in the love of his law. They sit at the seat of those who meditate on his word and stay seated there for the entirety of their lives. They are protected. They are blessed. He or she delights himself with the truth. They delight himself in the law of God. They find the music of the soul and the hymns of the Savior. This is the blessing of this book. One of my favorite descriptions of this blessing is from an anonymous writer who I must share with you what he says about the blessing of this scripture. He says, This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven is open, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand object, our good and its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is given to you in life and will be opened in the judgment and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. The result of this, verse 3. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. This is the picture of the blessing of the righteous, a tree, a tree that's been planted by streams of water. And notice it's not a wild tree. This is, this is not a tree that just happened to grow there. This tree was planted, chosen, Considered, cultivated, and secured. According to Better Homes and Gardens, (laughs) fall is the best time to do your digging. The soil must be moist. The place stakes around it so it can grow straight and make sure that it is watered. A blessed man or woman has been transplanted. The blessed man or woman then has fruit that appears and leaves are rich and filled with life and prosperity, true prosperity, real prosperity, fills this life with blessing and joy. Isn't that a picture of salvation? That's the picture of salvation. It reminds me of Isaiah in his 61st chapter as he starts to speak of all of these kind of agricultural connections to God and the way that he works in the world. It says in Isaiah 61, Verse three, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. God plants the oaks. God makes the heart new. God is the one who plants us by this water. James Montgomery Boyce adds another thought to that to consider. He says, The state of blessedness or happiness is not a reward. Rather, it is the result of a particular kind of life. Just as the tree with a constant water supply naturally flourishes, so too the person who avoids evil and delights in Torah naturally prospers. For such a person is living within the guidelines set down by the creator. The principle is clear. If you sow a thought, you reap a deed. If you sow a deed, you reap a a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And you sow a character, you reap a destiny. This is the destiny of the righteous. The destiny of those who delight in the word of God. But there is one final contrast to make, one final consideration that the gatekeeper of Psalm 1 provides for us. Not only is the destiny of the righteous blessed, but number two, the doom of the wicked is sure. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not so. In some ways, that single thought is enough. In some ways, that single thought just chills the blood and stops the heart. The wicked are not so. The destiny of the righteous, everything that belongs to them, all the blessing and delight and prosperity that belongs to them does not belong to the wicked. Those whose counsel is evil, those whose ways are sinful, those who sit tightly in their scoffing, Verse 4b, they're like chaff. They're dry, they're weightless, they're dead, blown about by the wind and then driven away. Chaff is worthless and chaff is burned. There's no hope, but only a profound sense of doom, a profound sense of insignificance. And verse 5 says to us, therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, for sinners nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is no anticipation here of hope. There's no acquittal. There's no ground to stand upon. There's just this eerie sense of judgment that awaits them. The gatekeeper here says, Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will not rise in the congregation of the blessed ones. Which makes me question in that verse, what are they doing there? Why are they in the congregation of the righteous? Is this possibly a Matthew 7, Lord, Lord kind of man or woman who is a tear among the wheat in the church and they didn't comprehend that they were lost because they never were confronted with these two realities? We don't know, but the text says Yahweh knows, verse 6, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want you to go to the prophet Jeremiah, because I want you to see something here that he does in chapter 17 of his prophecy. And I think you're going to see here the exact same ideas that are expressed in Psalm 1, but they're Unpacked in the reverse order. Same realities in reverse order that leaves us with a warning. Jeremiah 17, and I'll be reading from verses 5 to 8. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. And he will be like a juniper in the desert, And will not see when prosperity comes, but will dwell in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose trust is Yahweh. And he will be like a tree planted by the water that sends forth its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor refrain from yielding fruit. What a contrast. What a contrast. Again, the wicked trust in mankind. He trusts in this evil world system. He or she trusts in the entire scheme of this world, thinking that this world is actually not inhabited by the God of this world, Satan himself. There's no blessing. They turn from Yahweh. There's no blessing. There's only cursing. There's certain doom for the one who is this man or woman. They have no fear when they keep, instead of having no fear like the believer when the heat of the world burns upside down, this, this man or woman is a parched juniper in the desert. They're, they have no eternal prosperity. There's only wilderness. There's only waste in their life. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I say that because verse 9, probably the most well-known verse of this entire chapter, gives us a moment of contemplation. Verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the innermost being even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Look, stop trusting your heart. Stop trusting your heart. There is no lightness in looking at your own heart. There's only going to be death. The void and the voice inside your head that begs for you to complete this world by, by, by getting a part of it, becoming a part of it, is your rationalization. Stop rationalizing what you think. Stop rationalizing your profession. Stop rationalizing your lifestyle because your heart can trick you. You cannot walk and stand and sit with the world. If you want to sing, if you want to sing as Pastor MacArthur was speaking of today, you want your soul to be filled with music that we learned about this morning, then you cannot be filled with the ways of the wicked. The counsel is the counsel of the dying. The treasury of these holy songs belong to those who delight themselves in the Lord. So the gate has been opened, and the Psalms have been opened. And the paths have been defined and the destinies have been set before us. And we are now going to begin our journey through these songs that I pray you sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this doorkeeper of a psalm. Thank you for the fact that though this is most likely one of the most familiar psalms to all of us, Help us to be confronted with the reality of the two ways, the reality of the two considerations. We must choose the way of life, and yet there are those, even among us in our church, that continue rationalization, that continue to think that their life is not made up of behaviors that are aligned with the world when they are. We just ask, Lord, that you give us such peace and grace and such a love for your word that we truly do delight, that we truly do meditate on its precepts day in and day out, that the Psalms that we are about to study would open our hearts, convict our ways, and bring comfort to those that need comfort and to bring provocation to those that need to be provoked. We ask that you would use this series for the next year, that you would make our hearts open and that you would make us wise, all for the glory of your Son in whom many of these psalms remind us. For it's in his name we pray, amen.